surprise guilty plea in the quick win scandal. The finance minister goes to Washington and the premier casts some shade on the controversial FSA test. Joining me to talk about that and more are the Vancouver Suns, Vaughn Palmer and Rob Shaw. In the back half of the show, BC Liberal leadership candidate Michael Lee joins us in the studio for an extended chat. For Kamloops Computer Center, you're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. Good morning and welcome. Thank you for listening. Pleasure to be joined on the phone by Vaughn Palmer and Rob Shaw. Gentlemen, welcome. Good morning. I, uh, I hope it's nice and warm and sunny where you are because uh, we're hunting for our parka and snow boots up here. Yeah, I'm just sitting here doing uh, the typical Victorian's recreation this time of the year, looking at the highway cams at the top of Allison Pass, Sunday <laughs> Summit, and the Coquihalla, and sitting here smugly like Victorians do, <laughs> thinking, gee, the weather's kind of nice down here. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, blast from the past. We have a surprise guilty plea in the B.C. Liberal multicultural outreach plan that blew up after it was leaked uh, prior to the 2013 election. Essentially, a plan to do media events like the apology for the Chinese head tax to make inroads uh, or quick wins, as it became known. Uh, Brian Bonney pleading guilty to a charge of breach of trust, Vaughn. Yes, so this case was touted, uh, the New Democrats, you may remember, turned a mountain of evidence over to the RCMP after the 2013 election, and hinted pretty strongly that this was bring down the government time, this evidence was so damning. Well, I mean, there's been some charges. There were a few charges dealt with last year over a by-election that the Liberals lost, so there was a $5,000 fine there. And the one case that was going ahead, breach of trust on Monday... Uh, instead, the accused there, Brian Bonney, is a Clark campaign worker on our leadership and a government communications guy for a while. Uh, he went into court in Vancouver yesterday and pleaded guilty. They didn't tell the court much about what's coming, uh, the details. That apparently, uh, shame will be dealt with at the sentencing hearing. The prosecutor and the defense lawyer will speak then uh, at the sentencing hearing in December. Interesting stuff. Uh, Rob, what, what do you think of all that? Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting. We've covered this case, and I know you've been in it too, mm. uh, Shane, and done tons of stories on it. I can't tell you what specifically Brian Bonney uh, did uh, as that breach of trust. I mean, this is the problem with this case. is It's so long, it's so complicated. There has been so little information provided by the special prosecutor in at least the last two years about this case that... You know, specifically what incident or event did he do that he pleaded guilty to? I, I don't know the answer to that. I went back and reread all the stories we've done. There was a lot of allegations raised by the NDP. There was a lot raised in the House uh, about this case, uh, you know. But in the end, uh, one charge, which is vague, uh, and uh, we don't know a lot about it, and uh, trying to get some more info. So, you know, I agree with Vaughn. It was it looked like a huge issue at the time, and it politically was very damaging to the Liberals right before the 2013 election. But the NDP, um, you know, gave a ton of information to the police, and the police investigated it for the better part of four years, and this is all we got in yeah. the end. And uh, it kind of goes out with a whimper rather than a bang. Are we going to find out, I'm assuming we're going to find out more information when sentencing rolls around? No, yes? I, yes, uh, prosecutor like said... It, yeah, in December. 
Yeah, the special prosecutor said in an email yesterday that, yes, uh, he will lay out the circumstances and the offense in December. And the defense lawyer in this case, Bonnie's defense lawyer, said he'll have some things to say as well. So we may finally get some closure on the case. I The other thing, of course, unanswered, because the special prosecutor has said next to nothing, as Rob points out, for several years now, is... Is there anything left over in this case? Is there other stuff he's looking into that he hasn't decided how to do it? Or is this close the door Mm. another murky B.C. political scandal? Yeah, Uh, we'll have to keep a close eye on that one. Uh, Let's talk about uh, Carol James is uh, doing a big trip. Uh, One of the more interesting uh, stops for her is in Washington, D.C. this week, where she talked softwood lumber and and NAFTA, uh, among other issues. Uh, Those two things saying it could be among a mix of things that could pose a pretty big threat to the budget. Uh, uh, Rob, is there anything at all that she could do? I I imagine talking to the Canadian ambassador is not going to do much. No, I mean, this is, you remember during the election, this was kind of the the unspoken reality of what the NDP were saying. They were criticizing the Liberals very heavily for not standing up for British Columbians in the softwood file. And John Horgan, if he was elected, would go down to Washington in the first 30 days and kick down some doors and bang some heads together and get this thing solved. Well, that is not how it works. Uh, this is not something that the Premier of British Columbia or the Finance Minister can go down to and, and solve. This is a Canadian-U.S trade dispute uh, that uh, is going through a you know a complicated uh, set of proceedings so it's it's a more of a public relations exercise and a bit of a you know the effort by the new democrats to look like they're honoring what they said they would do in the election which is to solve this problem but they cannot do it by themselves so that's carol james's issue uh, part of her tour though was you know on on the idea of providing some reassurance to, you know, uh, big players in Canada and the U.S. on the economic stability of British Columbia, even with a a change in government. And that is a worthwhile effort, because from outside of B.C., people are probably looking at this province going, oh, my God, you've got got a minority government teetering on the edge with um, green partners. Uh, What the heck is going on there? Do we have confidence in the financial situation in B.C.? So that is a worthwhile effort for her. But no, the New Democrats aren't solving the softwood or NAFTA issues on their own on a trip to Washington. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, Vaughn, uh, softwood aside, NAFTA is threatening to crumble down. Are, are those things kind of big storms that could sideswipe this province? Oh, I think the whole Canadian economy. Uh, I mean, we saw our Prime Minister there putting his great acting skills to a maximum test yesterday by trying to look cheery and up <laughs> ending next to Trump. Uh, and, and obviously, I mean, you've got to deal with Trump, you've got to deal with his administration, but what they're demanding on NAFTA, uh, whatever Mexico and Canada say, threatens NAFTA. And, and the entire North American economy is integrated into NAFTA, because the treaty's been in place since the early 90s, 25 years, and supply chains and manufacturing stuff shipped back and forth between all three countries, and all that is is at risk. Uh, We've also got two other huge battles with the Americans. Rob just talked about softwood. Uh, You know, we can say we're not guilty on softwood, but the record shows that we usually end up cutting some sort of a deal with the Americans to limit our access to their market. And this Bombardier thing in both 
going. I mean, it, 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 you know, you go down to Seattle and uh, and down there, they're sure that we're guilty as charged. They've they've just jacked up the price of our jets by three hundred percent in the United States. So uh, that's another company that the national government has put a lot of support behind, political and otherwise. So I I think this is a low point in Canada-U.S. trade relations. I don't know when it was this bad the last time, but it is bad. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, Legislative Finance Committee is making its rounds. This is a dance we're very familiar with, although uh, now with the new government, I'm curious to know if you think there's going to be any changes. I know in the past, they've always come out with a nice long list of uh, rosy recommendations, uh, most of which usually gets ignored. I remember in years past, education funding uh, was the big one that everyone went, oh, there's the all-party committee, they want more education funding. Never happened in the the budget to follow. Uh, Rob, any chance here that the NDP government's going to treat this process differently? I don't think so. I think one of the biggest problems for the NDP government and Carol James is um, the lack of money that they're going to have to sprinkle on all the many groups out there that expect something from the New Democrats in the February budget. There's a massive uh, pressure to figure out, um, you know, get moving on all of the problems that they identified under the Liberals and all of the election platform uh, promises that they made, uh, and uh, there's no money to do all of that. There is some money, but but, uh, as Vaughn pointed out after the budget update, they have already pulled the levers on their major tax uh, hikes on the the wealthy uh, and corporations, and uh, that has not addressed massive issues like the $10 a day child care mm. or, or also all sorts of other promises that the Democrats have yet to follow through on. So the February budget is going to be tough. The many groups that are asking the Finance Committee to do things are going to be disappointed. And uh, it's about adjusting expectations uh, for a lot of new Democrat-friendly organizations and, and agencies that really want to see February as this cash windfall for all the things, all the grievances that they've had, and that, that is not going to be that. And Carol James has, to her credit, I think told you and, and us and others that uh, adjust your expectations accordingly for the February budget. Yeah. Uh, her, I forget the exact comment uh, that she said to me the other day, but basically among the threats of the budget uh, was the sheer amount of people with their hands out, Vaughn. Yeah, well, and encouraged by by the New Democrats through 16 years in opposition, where they basically promised everybody everything that they ever wanted. So it, the government has to rein in the expectations of its own supporters, has to manage the expectations raised by its own platform, $10 a day child care. Uh, according to the NDP platform, needs a $900 million injection in the first three years, and they haven't put a penny into that promise yet. So uh, they're going to get rid of MSP premiums over four years. Well, they've still got a billion dollars to deal with there. And Rob's right. They've already used up all the tax increase room they had. They've got two transit lines they're supposed to build in the lower mainland. They've got the Patello Bridge they're going to replace. They have to come up with a replacement for the Massey, the project they canceled. And they've gotten rid of tolls. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, you, I don't know how closely you follow the traffic reporting in the Lower Mainland, yeah. Jane, but uh, they're, they're getting massive accidents on the mass, on the on the Portman Bridge because the traffic has increased thirty, forty percent. People are driving at high speeds. They're getting ten and twelve car pileups, traffic congestion on a bridge that uh, was relatively uncrowded till recently because. People weren't taking it because they didn't want to pay the toll. Yeah, which makes me laugh because I remember all the times the TI Corp or TRIO uh, would tell us in the media, oh, there's no traffic diversion. I mean, People will adjust to the tolls. They'll come back. It's not a big deal. As soon as the tolls go up, it's gridlock city in the Portman. Good luck, guys. 
Uh, let's take a quick break, and on the other side, we'll pick up our conversation with Vaughn Palmer and Rob Shaw here on Inside Politics on Radio NL. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Keeping you informed from both sides. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Radio NL's Inside Politics with Shane Woodford. Welcome back. We're talking to Rob Shaw and Vaughn Palmer. Uh, guys, Premier John Horgan uh, this week casting a little bit of shade on the future of the controversial FSA tests, and uh, I'm sure at BCTF headquarters they were breaking out the party hats, Rob. Yeah, well, the, you know, the BCTF have long opposed essentially uh, you know, what the Fraser Institute does with the FSA tests every year, which is rank schools and kind of give the public some what they say is misleading uh, way to view all of these FSA test scores from, from kids. Uh, you know, it was interesting in the dying days of the Liberal government, Christy Clark came up with this education app that uh, didn't really go anywhere, but it was an attempt by the government to use the FSA data in a way that was stopped short of the Fraser Institute's rankings, but still gave the parents and public some ability to look at the school that their child was in and, and sort of how it could be improved and what areas. And you know, Because I don't think, um, I think a lot of parents out there do want some way to view, uh, you know, the performance of their child's school, mm-hmm. even just to be reassured that it's, it's doing a good job in areas where it might not be um, knowing that. And so... There is pressure on the Horgan government to just scrap, you know, the use of this data entirely and not let the Fraser Institute and others touch it. But, you know, there is probably an artful way to do it where you can find a way to use the data and stop short of ranking all the schools and taking the the BCTF off. But that's a... It's a bit of a compromise, and I don't think anyone's quite there yet. Yeah, the, my big problem with the FSAs is that other than the school rankings that the Fraser Institute puts out, uh, that data is not used in any meaningful way to impact the system. Uh, it doesn't uh, address. It doesn't, you know, impact funding. It's not really used to better the system at all, Vaughn. Yeah, but look, um, for years uh, the BCTF, all problems in the school system were blamed on the war on teachers. Well, the war is over. The teachers won. The government is in the process, uh, under court order and its own political inclinations, shoveling hundreds of millions of dollars into the school system. And I think, as parent, you'd want to know, what are we getting back for that? Is there going to be any measurement that shows what's improving in the system because of this? Uh, there's no question they've got the most teacher-friendly government they could imagine. They'll probably get what they want on uh, the FSA testing because the teachers' union's got everything else they wanted. Uh, but I think as a parent or even as a taxpayer, you might be out there and saying, well, if we're not going to have access to this testing and this independent ranking of the schools, what measure are we going to get? What targets are going to be set? and met for this hundreds of millions of dollars that we're putting into the system, mm. will there be results back, or will we just have less complaining from the teachers' union? Yeah. Uh, we only got a few minutes left. I want to squeeze in the topic about uh, the B.C. Liberal leadership debate set for Sunday, effectively a backroom campaign and announcement so far. Uh, we're going to finally see sort of a public showcase of the candidates uh, having a go at each other. Uh, Rob, what do you expect to see on Sunday? You know, I, I was wrestling with this in my mind. I, I guess the public has to realize... Uh, when we look at this, that it is a backroom race. You know, I was wondering why it's hard to cover the, the liberal leadership race. The, show, the candidates show up in different communities across the province 
and they don't tell the media that they're there. Well, that's because they don't really want the media there uh, covering mm-hmm. all the things that they say. It's only Liberal Party members who get to vote on this, and the idea that they have to appeal to the rest of the public is only part of the game here. Um, they have to appeal to the membership and the base and uh, that tent of Liberals from the right wing to the to the middle spectrum. And so this is the first uh, showcase for those members uh, in a kind of a debate forum. I think the most the person with the most to lose is is conceivably Diane Watts, who, by all accounts, and Vaughn, you've heard this as well, it hasn't been doing that great uh, out there uh, in uh, in meeting people, and uh, this is going to be her showcase to step up or or look like she's uh, she's fallen behind uh, the Todd Stones and the Andrew Wilkinsons who are who are out there, um, you know, making in, making I think inroads on on the issues that they have to make. Yeah, Vaughn. Yeah, I think uh, Watts is the one who's got to show uh, what she can do on Sunday. Surrey is her community. She was mayor there. That's where her reputation is grounded. She had a bad start uh, with a a forum for party presidents and party executives in Vancouver on September the 29th. She kind of bombed there. So she's got to show what she can do. Um, we, From what we've seen so far, I would say Wilkinson and Stone are the best organized in terms of province-wide organization and support from caucus. Uh, that's not the only factor in the race, but no. I would say that makes them the front two at the moment. As I recall, Kevin Falcon had, what, 22 MLAs? Uh, and I think he lost every riding of those that they represented to Clark. So there you go. Well, that's the. I mean, that's really the issue. Is that uh, you know, we want to look at the Lower Mainland, for example. You, you could have the party because it's a weighted ballot system. Uh, candidates could win all the rural areas of BC and win the leadership, uh, but they need to win the Lower Mainland to win the next next election. So it's a bit of a disconnect between how you win the leadership and how you win government uh, in the party. Uh, last word to you, Vaughn. Uh, Todd Stone with his campaign launch uh, and the strategy that I got from, from Stephen Smart is they, they decided to go into Surrey to tackle head-on some of the issues that are going to dog him, mainly the tolls and the transling referendum and stuff. But is, do you have an uphill battle in Metro? Uh, no, but I think he does have to answer the, especially the questions on tolls and how he handled himself as highways minister. But he's right in looking at Metro Vancouver as that's the way back to power for the Liberals. They already hold the North and the Interior. They're not going to deeply cut into NDP support on the on the island. But if they can win back Metro Vancouver, they're on their way back to power. All right, uh, gentlemen, thank you so much. Always appreciate it. Okay, thanks. That's Rob Shaw and Vaughn Palmer here on Inside Politics. We're going to take a quick break and get caught up to the news to the bottom of the hour with Bob Price. On the other side, a conversation with B.C. Liberal leadership contender Michael Lee. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Accountable to you. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. Good morning and welcome back to Inside Politics. Pleasure to be joined in studio this morning by one of the eight contenders running for the B.C. Liberal Party leadership. Vancouver Langara MLA Michael Lee joins us. Michael, welcome. Thank you, Shane. Thanks for having me on. How's it going so far? It's going well. Yeah. It's been uh, touring around the province. I was up, been up in Prince George and Quinnell and Vanderhoof and uh, Terrace and on the day of my launch and now through this Okanagan tour uh, through Penticton, Kelowna, as well as Salmon Arm and Vernon. It's an interesting race, and one in which uh, I don't want to say that, that you don't have name recognition. You might not in sort of the general 
larger voter kind of um, uh, umbrella. But within the BC Liberal Party, who will be voting... Uh, in this case, to choose a leader. Um, you may be a new MLA, but you're not new to them. You've been involved with this party, I believe, since, what, 2002? Yeah, I've been a member since 2002. I uh, came through the Gordon Campbell years. I was on his riding executive doing outreach. I was on Colin Hansen's riding executive, which is why I live in his riding, which is now Andrew Wilkinson's riding. Yeah. I've come on to uh, chair campaigns municipally uh, in the city of Vancouver. I previously worked in the early 90s for Kim Campbell when she was Minister of Justice and then Defence Minister, and I worked on her leadership campaign. Many of the people who worked on her campaign are working with me today on mine. And then coming forward uh, more recently, since 2013, I was a riding president for the riding I now represent, Vancouver Langara. I was on the Provincial Council, the Executive Board of the party, as well as the membership chair of this party provincially when we redid the Constitution in 2015. All right, so uh, you're well-known within the party. Uh, what does a Michael Lee-led BC Liberal Party offer, um, not only just Metro Vancouver, but uh, Kamloops, the interior, and people in the north as well? What, what would you bring to them? Well, I think it's a new vision for this party and our province. It's one that speaks to more balance. In the last election in 2017, the BC Liberals became only known, in my view, for jobs in the economy, and that's, that's fundamentally important. Balanced budgets, AAA credit ratings, uh, low taxes. That's what BC Liberals can, will continue to provide to this province. But it's more than just about that. We need to get past the false choices that the NDP and the other media, some media, have set up for this province, which is pitting the environment against the economy. Mm. So I believe that this province has a very strong BC brand, one that believes in responsible resource development. I've been a business lawyer for over 20 years uh, here in this province. Working with forestry, mining, energy companies are all over this province, including technology companies as well. And I believe that we need to change that narrative. We can develop and continue to develop resource development projects in this province, uh, meeting the toughest uh, environmental and safety standards in the world, as well as continue to look at our regional economic development around this province. We need to use our college and university systems. Thompson Rivers University, UNBC, I used to be the chair of the UBC Alumni Board. Yep. I know the post-secondary system and the clusters of innovation and collaboration that we can have with entrepreneurs, government, uh, local communities is, is going to be fundamentally important as to how we move forward this province. One of the things that I personally take issue with is, is that we have such a, an entrenched partisan um, crowd nowadays that conversation sometimes, finding common ground and compromise is, is almost in some ways negligible. And the resource development you just referred to there is, is a prime example. We have two narratives that you either have the, the pipeline, the LNG facility, the dam, the whatever, or you have the environment. And, and there's no middle ground, according to some. But I, but I gather you don't buy that particular idea. Not at all, Shane. And, you know, I think we're at such a critical juncture for this province's future. We've done well. Right? Clearly, we've taken advantage of the rich resource abundance that we have in this province. We've built this province well. Under W.A.C. Bennett, uh, Gordon Campbell, Bill Bennett before him, and now Christy Clark. There's been a strong legacy of leadership in this province. But the dialogue and the narrative needs to be reshaped because it's very damaging and very undermining to the future of this province. The law firm that I was with uh, up until the May election was 120 lawyers, 300 employees. All of their families depended upon the resource base of this economy. And there are other companies, of course, engineering, environmental, accounting, other professional services firms in Vancouver that rely on and are connected to the rest of this province. So I know that in BC politics, it's very polarized. 
and it's been successful for many parties, including the NDP government. The politics of division is what we have to get past. So I am offering not only a new voice and a new perspective for the leadership of the BC Liberal Party, but also a new way as to how we come more to, to come together to recognize that this province has a lot of opportunity and a need to attract more capital and investment in this province and more talent. A lot's been made about, and I know Todd Stone, uh, talking to him here the other day when he finished off day one of his campaign, uh, talked about this community kind of moving away from its uh, natural resource roots and becoming more of a knowledge economy, a mix of the, of the two. Uh, a lot of people talk about tech and the knowledge economy, and maybe a little more in Metro Vancouver where you deal with the Ubers and, and the different technologies that people are quicker to adopt. But uh, where does the tech and the knowledge economy kind of fit or mesh within your plans for, for the future economy of this province? It's central. So, you know, I think, I think there are three things that I see for this economy. One was responsible resource development, the push, uh, the resetting of that narrative. The second one is, is this clusters of innovation approach that I've, that I've talked about. When I was in Kelowna uh, just uh, yesterday, I was touring around, again, Accelerate Okanagan. And that's another opportunity where we have 15 centers of excellence through uh, BC Innovation Council. And I would say that Accelerate Okanagan is probably the primary, the leading one where we can look at the models that they have for working with startup entrepreneurs and other scale-up uh, transitions to continue to create what they have in Kelowna now, 25 companies of employees ranging from 30 to 60 employees each. They have more of a critical mass. We need to develop that more across this province. I've seen that model, of course, uh, in Vancouver with uh, E at UBC, entrepreneurship at UBC is something I've been involved with as well as other models in Nanaimo and Victoria on the island uh, and up north. I think we need to continue to develop that. Uh, and I, cer I certainly agree with uh, uh, Todd and my other colleagues who see that future. I've been uh, involved with uh, technology companies, both from the early startup phrase all the way to how they finance themselves and expand. Uh, advising those companies. I also sit on three private company boards, one in technology as well. As the party's former membership chair, there's been some suggestion from uh, from uh, the so-called experts that you know who to direct your attention to, that while other people may have a good name recognition, uh, you're well-connected inside the party. Is that the case in your mind or no? Well, I, you know, I think that this is a fair and level playing field process for each of the candidates. Uh, I, as the membership chair, uh, worked on membership engagement across this province with a working group of uh, regional directors and riding presidents and others. Uh, so I think the party um, leadership and those who are involved in the field and the communities that are across this province know me fairly well. But they also know the other colleagues of myself in, in, the, in the BC Liberal Caucus. Uh, some of them, of course, many of them have been uh, cabinet ministers. They've toured the province. They've done yeoman's work in terms of uh, attending fundraisers and doing that. So I think we've each made a contribution and we're known in, in those ways. Let's talk about uh, the BC Liberal Party, which I think is fair to say, as any government would over a 16-year period, has some things to answer for, maybe some skeletons in the closet. There were some good decisions and, and there were some not-so-good decisions. And uh, there is a, a sense from the, your fellow candidates, at least, that there needs to be some changes made uh, to prevent what happened in the last provincial election. I mean, the issue of tolls, for example, in the Lower Mainland. I think you brought up that the party was cast as, as not caring about the people when it really did. So in your mind, how, where do you see this course correction to kind of reconnect the party? I think we need to rebalance what we focus on. As, as you mentioned, thanks for uh, picking that up. I, I have said that the last election was really a situation where our party was seen not to care, and we do care. 
every single party that comes forward, candidates who step forward, riding uh, supporters, people who work in those riding associations, support any political party, they care about our communities and our futures. And certainly BC Liberals do too. And so we've got to change that narrative. We've got to rebalance uh, the fact that it's not just about jobs and the economy. It's also about the security and the safety of our communities, uh, building sustainable communities in a more environmentally uh, stewardship way, innovating our healthcare system, challenging our, our education system to build for the future, and having stronger social programs. Uh, I think that, Shane, right now, what's happening in the House, in Victoria, there continues to be this pushback dialogue, back and forth, back and forth. The last 16 years, you know, if you think this is such a great idea, why didn't you guys do that? Mm. And that's, you know, I, I appreciate that that's the gamesmanship that we have to do in politics. But really to have effective, better government, we have to get past that. Both parties, whether it's the NDP, uh, BC Liberals, or even the Green Party. And so I hope that as we come forward, we build a stronger base in this leadership race. Certainly that's my intention. And level some of the discussion here. Because we have to build for the future. It's not just about the last 16 years. It's about the future of this province. And myself, as a new member of the BC Liberal Caucus, I feel like I can change the channel. I can change that narrative. And that's why I'm coming forward. Michael, why don't we take a quick break? Uh, and on the other side, we'll pick up this conversation. Uh, we're talking to Michael Lee, one of the BC Liberal Party leadership candidates. More with him right after this on Inside Politics. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Center. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics. Here's NL News Director Shane Woodford. Welcome back to Inside Politics. We're talking to BC Liberal leadership contender Michael Lee. Uh, Michael, let's dive into some of the issues that uh, we found out yesterday. The overdose crisis has claimed 1,013 lives in this province, surging past all of 2016's death toll. Uh, I mean, how, how do we stop this thing? Well, I know it's been a challenge, uh, and under Terry Lake's leadership uh, with the BC Liberal government previously, uh, there's been certainly uh, more resources, more uh, better strategies employed through the Ministry of Health. Uh, obviously, under our new government, the NDP government, there's a renewed focus on mental health, and that's something the BC Liberals had advocated for as well. I think we need more resources on the front lines, uh, more training and um, integration with uh, the kind of people who are dealing with these issues, uh, whether it's um, in the medical profession or in our police force and enforcement. Uh, obviously, in terms of looking at uh, how we go forward as a society, I think this is a collective responsibility. We need to continue to um, embrace and help each other, uh, whether it's the homeless uh, or, and I know that in Kamloops, uh, there's, there's obviously issues I have concern there as well not just in Metro Vancouver, but all over the province, whether Victoria or Kamloops or other metropolitan centers, we're dealing with these issues. And as a community, I believe that for good not-for-profit organizations that are trying to help in this regard, we need to partner more with government. Uh, we need to have more frontline support and, and uh, personnel to assist with this as well. And we need to continue to look at what's being um, done to this community and all our communities across this province in terms of the, the kind of uh, drug trade that's coming into our province. We need to get on top of that more and uh, stem what is uh, obviously something that is 
systemic now in our system. And is it is it a is it a mindset, a prejudice, a stereotype? Because one of the things that bothers me is there's a perception of drug addiction that it's uh, that it's those people in the downtown east side, or that drug addicts are somehow you know I've I've often heard that the callous and, and I think frankly irresponsible commentary from some that they're drug addicts just let them die. But it, it occurs to me that over the period of the last year and three quarters that we have seen fathers, mothers, we have seen businessmen, we have seen people drop at weddings. Uh, in this community, we lost a, a, a pillar of the community, a guy at TRU who's uh, left his fingerprints all over this town, um, who made a mistake and uh, it cost him his life. And so I, I often wonder if maybe we need to take a step back and really start having an open conversation to take the shame and kind of our own stereotypes out of this to kind of drag it out of the darkness and put it in the spotlight a little bit. Yeah, you know, Shane, I, I totally agree with you. I've seen uh, leaders in our community, people like Jeff Cortnell and others who have stepped forward over the last number of years to talk about their own challenges with mental health. And there is a stigma. I, I think that, uh, gratefully, uh, I know other members in the community, whether they've f family members or themselves have suffered from this, uh, they've come out and spoken about it. And it, it is about the dialogue. We need to get it out on the table more. And I think we're getting there. Uh, but we need to recognize, as you just went through, the kinds of people. It's, it's all of us. It can affect any of us. And I know that each of our families, uh, each of the people in our community, we know of someone uh, who's struggling with that. And so I, I do think as a community, as a society, uh, we need to support and help people through that more. Um, I know that on, in terms of the homeless, uh, the sort of the most, most explicit ways that we see this on the street, that a healthy community is one where we don't have that disparity. I know that there are studies in the United States that demonstrate that for a truly healthy community to be together, we need to deal with uh, the kind of income disparity, the kind of people who are suffering in our communities, people on the street. And I think helping get people off the street through homeless shelters or rather uh, through BC housing, there's definitely different housing projects that are available that get people off the street into a, a with a roof over their head um, start working with some of the personnel there, start working through some of their issues. It's not a permanent thing. It's something that they can transition off the streets. I think we need to provide more resources for that. And I know that Rich Coleman and BC Housing has done great work with that over the years. All right. Where do you stand on the proportional representation uh, as much as we know of whatever we're going to vote on uh, next year? I've uh, certainly communicated out to the party membership uh, last week uh, that I'm uh, very concerned about the bill that the NDP have brought uh, forward uh, to have the referendum in November of 2018. Uh, I'm uh, against proportional representation. I believe that what we need in this province is actually to increase the level of excellence of men and women, people come from different walks of life, to be part of our governments, municipally, provincially, or federally. That's one of the reasons why I step forward. Proportional representation uh, is only going to lead us to what we have today, which is uh, three individuals who have been elected uh, wagging the dog. The tail wagging the dog uh, in the sense that uh, we nobody elected this NDP Green Coalition. Uh, we're getting policies and broken promises that are not being met uh, because we have a situation where they have to get along with each other. And that's not good government. Um, I believe that leads to a place where uh, we do not have the kind of solid, forward-looking decision-making we need to do. We have short-term thinking. Uh, so these are the kinds of concerns and the lack of representation, of course, for the rest of the province that 
a mixed member system might uh, provide. Uh, there's obviously been a lot of dialogue, including with the media, about that. These are just some of the concerns with this system. And I think the fact that they lowered the bar, the threshold to 50% plus one, and not and have everyone vote equally across this province is, is going to be an issue as we come forward. And certainly uh, myself and other members of the BC Local, local Caucus can you sp- speak against this. All right. Uh, last question. Uh, the big first debate comes up, I believe, Sunday in Surrey, correct? That's right. Okay. What do you think? Are you ready? I am. It's going to be a good showcase for uh, all eight candidates. I'm looking forward to it. We'll, uh, it will be broadcast on Facebook Live as well. Yeah. Uh, so you can see... Uh, your local boy, Todd Stone, on the stage with myself and others, and I think it's going to be a great uh, first debate. How much uh, weight will it carry with voters, do you think, within the party? Well, you know, for me, I, I, it's my opportunity to continue to speak uh, for people to get to know me, so thanks again for having me on today. Um, I have my material on social media, on Facebook Live, on my website as well, as the other candidates do, and I think this debate will provide uh, not just the members of this party, but others in this province an opportunity to see an early look again at the future of our leadership in our BC Liberal Party. So I welcome others uh, to view it. Michael, thanks for coming in. Uh, enjoyed the chat. Thanks, Shane. That was Michael Lee, BC Liberal leadership contender and MLA for Vancouver Langara. Switching gears really quickly here, we're joined on the phone by the Minister of Citizen Services, Ginny Sims, who happens to be in our neck of the woods today down in Merritt. Ginny, I believe you're going to be uh, going down and checking out the Service Canada situation in Merritt as well as visiting the Lower Nicola Indian Band. Uh, what's on your to-do list? Why are you down there? Well, first of all, we'll be visiting the Service BC Centre here in Merritt as well and uh, sort of seeing the work that they're doing and hearing the concerns from that aspect. But our uh, main visit today will be the Lower Nicola Indian Band, and we're there to talk about connectivity. We know that, um, you know, optics, uh, optic cable, and uh, what's really critical nowadays for economic growth is connectivity and having that access to Internet. And so we're meeting with the All Nations Trust to go over how we can uh, work together to improve connectivity to uh, the people uh, covered by the Lower Nicola Indian Band. How tricky a task is that, Ginny? I mean, maybe uh, for other areas of the province, there's going to be a lot of cost to get somebody out there. Uh, Maybe not so much for the Lower Nicola. They're a little closer to merit itself. But uh, give me an idea. How tricky is it to connect all of these small and rural communities? Very, very tricky because, as you know, our main service providers for the optic cable is uh, Talos. And, uh, you know, they're a private company that looks at a business model. And uh, for a lot of these smaller communities, uh, the cost is very, very prohibitive. So what we're very fortunate to have are a lot of small companies like ABC Communications and others, small IPS providers who are sort of stepping in and uh, taking uh, or doing the last mile, so to speak, because often the um, optic cable is close by, but it's getting it to people's homes and getting it into uh, the areas that it's needed in. So you're absolutely right, but uh, we are very, very committed because we know that that connectivity is a boost for uh, tourism. It's also a boost for uh, economic growth and uh, gives communities another tool, another attraction for attracting people to move into those communities as well and do business from those communities. And as well, I understand some of the feedback uh, after this historic wildfire year was that uh, internet access in some of those uh, rural areas would have helped on the communication level as crews were fighting fires and people were out of house and home, etc. 
Well, absolutely, and I've seen some of the devastation uh, on this tour because I've been up to Williams Lake, Quenelle, that area as well. And uh, we know that uh, we have a lot of work to do. There is going to be a review, as there is after the fire season, and people are looking very, very carefully at what needs to be done. But, you know, uh, we as a government are not in the business of building uh, towers for uh, telecommunications. And as you know, that is also under the federal government as well. But it's provided by uh, Rogers or Talus, and we're working with them and using the procurement we do with Talus to get, get some value added. As an example, we were able to negotiate with them uh, an additional 1,700 uh, kilometers full of cellular coverage because of the procurement we do with them. Give me an idea. I mean, I, I get the gist of it, but I and the challenges in front of us. But it, on a time frame level, are we talking, you know, next year, a years, months? Uh, any idea when we could start seeing actual internet connectivity in some of the rural parts of the province? Some of them very, very soon. I hope we've got some amazing proposals in right now. We're just waiting to hear from the federal government and the announcements on the projects they choose. And some of those projects will see uh, connectivity going to some of our remotest areas. Here in um, the All Nations Trust, uh, some progress has been made uh, in getting internet services and doing the last mile. That was Ginny Sims, Minister of Citizen Services. My thanks to my guests, Rob Shaw, Von Palmer, Michael Lee, and Ginny Sims. We'll see you right here on Radio NL and Inside Politics next Friday. The Valley's first choice for local news. CHNL, 610 AM in Kamloops and streaming online at RadioNL.com.